This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Cook, Will, Lake, DuPage, and McHenry counties in the Chicagoland area, they're now at the CDC's high community risk level for COVID-19 transmission. And Chicago has announced the state's first two cases of monkeypox. What's up with that? Today, we're going to check in with infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina at Dooley Health and Care to get the latest on COVID and other infectious diseases in our region. Hi, Dr. Teramina. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Sasha. I got to start with monkeypox. The Chicago sure. Department of Public Health announced the first two cases of the disease in Illinois late last week. What is it exactly and what are the symptoms? So monkeypox is a viral infection that's kind of a cousin of smallpox. It's been around since the 50s with human cases in the 70s and onward. Um, It is something that is transmitted by close skin-to-skin contact, really. It can be carried in droplets and can be carried in aerosols, but really it requires that close intimate contact, usually with the lesions that form on the skin. It's very flu-like, severe body aches, fevers, headaches, and then that classic rash that we sometimes see pictures of in the media. Mm -hmm. And most of the cases that we're seeing here in the U.S. are in folks that have had some sort of travel recently. It does have a little bit longer incubation period too. So it's about up to three weeks people can develop symptoms after they've been exposed to this virus. Well, the the CDC travel alert level for monkeypox right now, it's at level two or Uh, practice enhanced precautions. What does that actually mean for folks who are planning to travel soon? You know, the the tricky part is, is going to be to kind of go back to where we've been with our COVID precautions. Maybe greeting strangers with a handshake is best with an elbow bump or something along those lines where patients could have, you know, uh, symptoms that are just starting up. If you have any symptoms that seem like they could be monkeypox-like, especially if you've traveled someplace, you know, we're talking about a virus right now that has about 900 cases confirmed worldwide. So we're not talking about tens of thousands of cases or anything like that. Um, So it's the chances are very, very rare. But if you do develop symptoms, those body aches, fevers, and the classic rash, certainly you would need to seek medical attention. And then there's options for people that have now been close to you to try some post-exposure prophylaxis or maybe vaccination to help uh, individuals who have been exposed to you. So here in Chicago, is the hype not reflective of the rate of transmission? Like, is there any chance of this spreading more widely here than I just think we're going to see more cases. Yeah, I think we're going to see more cases. I mean, we have a, a globally traveling uh, population. So we're, we're definitely going to see more cases. And we're, we're likely going to see in some states, if not Illinois, local spread where individuals are going to spread to a family member or someone that they've had close contact with as well. But the nature of this and the way it's transmissible is not nearly as contagious as something like COVID. So I don't foresee us having a significant, tremendous uh, uptake in cases. It's also important important to note, there are two different kinds of monkeypox, and the particular monkeypox variant causing all of these cases that we're seeing right now is the West African variant, which is very, very mild compared to the Congo variant. So we're, we're not seeing uh, life-threatening cases at this point. In fact, I'm not aware of any deaths at all anywhere associated with this particular surge we're seeing. All right, let's shift gears to covid What does the change from medium to high risk mean for us here in Chicago? So definitely the change from medium to high risk means that 
all of us, regardless of our health status or vaccine status, really should be masking in all indoor spaces. And that's especially going to be true if it's an indoor space where ventilation may be poor or where there may be crowding and social distancing is not possible. Certainly, there is no mandate for most places at this point. I am seeing a little bit of some private entities going back to requiring masking in some of their uh, locations. But at this point, regardless, again, of your of your health status, you should be masking if you're going into indoor public spaces in uh, high risk areas. So what is what's causing this uptick in cases and in hospitalization? Is it that lack of indoor masking or is it because maybe of a a more contagious subvariant of of Omicron? Yeah, we are starting to see another version of the Omicron subvariants kind of picking up steam a bit. It's that Omicron BA2.1, 2.1, and that variant is now overtaking BA2. And every time we see these subvariants overtake the previous subvariants, we're looking at something that's a little more contagious, that is a little more transmissible. Fortunately, for the most part, even though we're seeing case counts coming up, um, we are, you know, also seeing you know, hospitalizations uh, that are starting to tick up, especially in those over age 70 years old, but we're not seeing too much of a tick up in death or anything like that. And a lot of these cases are not severe, but they're prominent enough that it's a numbers game. And if we continue to infect, you know, non-discriminately, we are eventually going to see sicker patients in the hospital and, and individuals that may die from this. So that's what we're trying to avoid here is, you know, getting to that point where we start to really stress healthcare and really risk people getting severely ill. Jewel Osco has reinstated its mask mandate for employees in response to the move to high transmission. And uh, Chicago's top doctor, Allison Already, has uh, said that she strongly recommends universal indoor masking. What's it going to take for the city to reinstate mask mandates? You know, I keep saying that I don't see that happening, and yet uh, Jewel surprised me a little bit. I have uh, tremendous respect for the advisors to Jewel that that move to protect their employees. This is a very public job for individuals exposed to just a lot of people, and certainly us in healthcare, uh, we are wearing masks still, and, and there's no end in sight with that. I think we're going to see more entities like Jewel, more private entities making those decisions for mask mandates, especially among their employees. But respectfully, uh, as patrons, we should be doing the same to protect ourselves and the employees of these uh, organizations. I really think the the thing that's going to make this go to a mask mandatory kind of blanket recommendation is likely going to have to be either stressing our healthcare systems or uh, the uh, evolving variant um, potential that is just not well covered by our therapeutics, by our vaccines, and we have a true escape variant on our hands, which likely would cause a surge that could significantly stress what we're seeing right now. Yeah. We talked with infectious disease specialist Dr. Emily Landon last week. I want you to hear how she explained how risk is mainly calculated in the context of our hospital system. So things like mandates and requirements are only being put into place when healthcare as a system is threatened. They do not necessarily put in any mandates or requirements for your individual personal safety. They rely on you to make your own choices about your safety because that's what people said they wanted to be able to do. Does that metric leave things out, Dr. T? 
You know, it, it, it does. Um, but we are definitely in this place two and a half plus years into this pandemic where I just, I, I agree with Emily that we are not going to be able to easily reinstate a mask mandate unless there is truly a perceived critical issue in healthcare where we cannot get patients in, where we cannot care for the sick, where we cannot perform our day-to-day routine surgeries and other things because the staff is inundated in the hospitals. So until and unless we see that, I really don't foresee this universal stuff. But walking around without a mask in indoor spaces where there's high transmission is is taking that onus on yourself that you may become infected and you may be the one that gets infected at the point where our healthcare systems start to not be able to accommodate everyone's needs. And then things become really stretched thin for all of us. We know it's already starting to feel like summer, doctor. So given this high risk level, what would you say should be the etiquette when we're gathering, right? Should we be testing before these barbecues or parties? And I'm thinking about planes and airports too. What should people be doing? I think it would be great to use those, you know, tests that we're able to receive from the the government for free to have on hand to use them right before a get together, um, like a party. And if for some reason you are going to be gathering with folks and, and didn't opt to test beforehand, it's very reasonable to monitor yourself for symptoms afterwards, especially, you know, in that first week or so after the gathering. Three to five days is usually the sweet spot when symptoms start to show themselves, but it's also a good time to go ahead and test uh, around day five after a high-risk exposure, even if you don't have symptoms, just to see. Being that the weather's getting nicer, get outside, stay socially distanced. I mean, outside activities are are generally very safe, unless you're truly in a a concert gathering or something where you're going to be shoulder-to-shoulder with other people. But being outdoors for picnics, barbecues, poolside, and things like that should be far lower risk, especially during this time of nice weather. But we also had this conversation last June, and Delta was behind it in July, and we didn't know that that was coming. We don't know what the future holds. We could all be enjoying our summer this month and have another variant come up behind us that really um, takes us uh, you know, by surprise and, and have a situation. We don't foresee that in the forecast, but COVID has definitely given us a challenge uh, you know, all along this entire pandemic. A recent Northwestern University study found that most COVID long haulers, they have neurological symptoms 15 months after the initial infection. So if you're vaccinated at this point, how worried should you be about long COVID, even if your initial infection was mild? Yeah, well, one in 15 people right about that statistic level will still have some long COVID symptoms. We need to move into a more standard definition of what long COVID is because a lot of folks might have COVID um, and get better in their five, six, seven days and get back to work or whatnot, but still feel some fatigue or cough or whatnot that can last for weeks. When we are talking about long COVID and and what we're really starting to look at now is those who have symptoms three plus months beyond their diagnosis, not just symptoms that linger for a month or two. We're looking for those real long haul symptoms. And then we are starting to see different types of, um, uh, you know, modalities for why long COVID is even occurring. Mm -hmm. The encouraging part is we are seeing less long COVID with Omicron than we did with alpha, beta, gamma, delta along the way. And we are seeing folks that are 
triple vaccinated, both your vaccines and at least that first booster are having far less instances of long COVID. Similarly, folks that have had two doses of vaccine and then get COVID and then get their booster, they too are having a good response and having less instances of long COVID. So the best protection is going to be to be triple vaccinated. And that includes if you're eligible for a booster, but become ill with COVID to go ahead and still get that booster. That's good to know. Almost out of time, doctor, but uh, I understand that we may also be getting a new vaccine option. Tomorrow, uh, FDA advisors plan to debate authorizing a shot that's developed by a biotech company called Novavax. Briefly, what's the significance of this and why now? So Novavax is going to bring into the mix another option in another vaccine mechanism for folks that cannot tolerate messenger RNA vaccines and for folks that uh, do not prefer the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or shouldn't be getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So having additional vaccines in our arsenal is important. And Novavax has been on the cutting edge as well of looking at bivalent vaccines, which may become a tool into the fall where we have a vaccine that might cover uh, COVID and flu and possibly RSV as well. That's Dr. Mia Teramina with Dooley Health and Care. Dr. Teramina, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.